Welcome to Connectify Conversations. My name is Sean Topshi, and I'm the Director of Business Development at Connectify. Our mission is to share the experience, expertise, and insights from gaming industry leaders that comes from years of navigating the complexities and impact of compliance. On this episode, I am joined by special guest, Alex Dixon, President and CEO, Q Casino and DRA. Thanks for joining us today, and remember to like and subscribe to the podcast. You can also learn more anytime at connectify.com. That's K-I-N-E-C-T-I-F-Y dot com. Alex, thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of Connectify Conversations. I really want to start off for, for those people that may not know you, if, if you want to give a little bit of an intro background on yourself and kind of your, your path in the industry. Great. No, well, thank you, Sean. I really appreciate the opportunity. Again, my name is uh, Alex Dixon. I humbly serve as the president and CEO at Q Casino and DRA here in Dubuque, Iowa. But my history in gaming kind of goes back three generations. My grandmother left the plantations of Louisiana to move out west as a part of the Great Migration to Las Vegas in the 1950s. And so she was came out and got involved as a housekeeper in the industry. My dad, he relocated from Opelika, Alabama in the 1960s. He came out to Las Vegas to become a part of the, with the Air Force. He was stationed at Nellis Air Force Base. And so that's how he got out. But he was finished the GI Bill at, at UNLV there. And he was able to start at the Flamingo as a porter. So he then became a, a bar back and then later a bartender. So I joke and tell people I'm a, I'm a third generation casino employee for first time sitting in the offices, but it's, it's been a, been a great run, but yeah, born and raised in Las Vegas. I went to Durango high school, played a lot of sports and, and had an opportunity to attend Howard university in Washington, DC, uh, where he studied finance and really caught, caught the investment banking bug. I, I started out with, I was 19 years old, I can remember, working, I was living in Hoboken, New Jersey at the YMCA, uh, interning down on Wall Street. And in Vegas, you know, we didn't really have, you know, a great deal of public transportation. So riding the subway was a big deal for me, and, but we made it through. And so I ended up getting an internship with Goldman Sachs my junior year and moved uh, to Brooklyn, New York, stand up Brooklyn. And had a great time uh, while I was there working within mergers and acquisitions, focused on oil and gas, but had an opportunity then to, to move to London. And one day my, you know, kind of associate at the time said, hey, look, we need folks over in London. And I packed up and this was 2005 and was still focused on oil and gas in Middle East and North Africa. But I had made a commitment to move to L.A. to be in the mergers and acquisition groups within the media and entertainment space. And so we were advising Disney when they bought Pixar. And so that was just an amazing time of uh, my professional life. Um, but while I was there in L.A., we, uh, I met my wife. We were expecting and we moved back to Vegas to start up the family. And, and uh, this was uh, 2006. And I was working at a boutique investment bank where we were raising capital for developers who wanted to build these big master plan communities. As you know, Vegas was and is still growing like, you know, like crazy. And, and some of those developers would not only build homes, but then would take some some land and say, hey, let's go build a casino. And so it was at that time when I was an associate that I really got exposed to the casino side of the business in a way that was different from when I was growing up where, you know, all my cousins were, you know, dealers and you know, working on the strip in some capacity. But this is when the light bulb kind of switched and said, hey, I'd love to go do that. And so left the bank and joined Caesars Entertainment. I was a director of planning and analysis and worked my way up through Caesars. A lot of good coaching, mentoring, developing, getting chewed out, the whole deal. But I landed as the assistant general manager in Baltimore. Sometimes in life, you got to go out when you go up. And so moved out there and was the assistant general manager for Horseshoe Baltimore when that opened up. And then after about four years, moved up to Springfield, Massachusetts. I was a general manager at MGM Springfield. We opened that facility. My role was going to get cut, but I landed as a president chief operating officer at Circus Circus. And then after moving the family back to Vegas in August or September, I'd say about 2019, MGM decided to sell Circus Circus. And so I took 
we we I stayed on until the end of the sale. Mr. Ruffin met him, you know, great gentleman, but uh, decided to move on. And I stayed in touch with a friend of mine who was running a, a private equity owned laundry company. So Brady Lennon there in Las Vegas, I took over as a president. I said, hey, Vegas is always going to need laundry. Let me take this equity, ride it out and, you know, go, go off to the sunset. But I had my DCF, my Excel spreadsheet was looking really good and knew, knew how everything would work. And then COVID hit. So it was a whirlwind. We had 1,200 employees doing laundry. We went down about 45 when, when COVID hit. You know, fortunately, we made it through. We persevered, you know, staved off all the bad stuff when you don't have any revenue. But then I got a call from Dubuque, Iowa to be a, a CEO of a nonprofit casino. And so my wife and I, we moved with our three kids here to Dubuque, which is a small rural community, about three hours west of Chicago, about 60,000 people. And uh, took over as a nonprofit CEO, which I'd never heard of, but we'll talk a lot more about that. So that's a little bit of the origin story back background. And so it's a bit windy and a bit long, but hopefully that kind of gives you a better background of, of who I am and, and all the great things and people who helped me to get to where I am today. You know, when you, when you told me you were a third generation Las Vegas, first off, you don't meet many, many people like that, honestly. I mean, I usually consider myself a Vegas native, technically didn't move here till I was two though. But really curious to jump into the DRA, the, this idea of a nonprofit casino. You know, we, we do see similar kind of operating models in, in Canada, where you've got technically the crown corporations, which are owned by the government that run the casinos. But it's, it's even this is a little more unique in that there's a much more direct ownership level. And I think a, a similar reinvestment back in, into the community. So yeah, tell us, tell us a little bit more about the the DRA and kind of its mission. Thank you, Sean. And and so the Dubuque Racing Association is is a is a nonprofit that really got its origin back in the the mid 1980s. We were formed uh, because our community was really going through a tough time, like a lot of other Midwestern communities. And so we had a record unemployment, close to 30 percent, because we had the farm crisis and a lot of manufacturing was leaving communities like this. And so the the local powers that be, the local leadership, the local government collaborated and says, hey, we need to do something dramatically different if we want to change the trajectory of our community. And so they banded together and they literally issued a referendum to help to raise a general obligation bond or to pass a general obligation bond to build the first uh, nonprofit casino, excuse me, nonprofit Greyhound racetrack in the country. And so in a technical sense, they created a 501c4 organization that would be the beneficiary of the general obligation bond, the $7 million that the city issued to help build this racetrack. But once the racetrack was opened and it was successful, it was going like gangbusters, they used the profits to repay that loan back to the city. And so as a part of that, the land that we still now operate is owned by the city, but we operate under a lease. And within that lease, we pay not only rent, but a portion of our distributions goes back to the city. And so for really the first 35 years of our existence, or really 37 years of our existence, we would run the business you know, for a profit and then distribute those profits, not back to a single owner or to an, you know, any equity shareholder, but it would go back to the, it would go back to the city 50%, and the other 50% of those profits would go to local nonprofits. And, and that worked and it was, and it was, it was a great thing for our community. But one of the things, as you could imagine in a going concern, you have to reinvest uh, within your business in order to make sure that um, you continue on and be successful. And so when I got the, the call, the opportunity to move here, literally just a, a, about over two years ago, we had a great business. And so just to share, we, we top line, you know, it's not the biggest business in the world, but, you know, we do about 60 million top line and, and close to $20 million in free cash flow or 20, 20 million in EBITDA, which is, look, it's a good little business. And, but one of the things I recognized and saw was that, hey, if, if, if we keep putting off a major either redevelopment or major reinvestment in our property, that 20 million could equally just, just decline, you know, in pace and trajectory. And because um, we're, business, we're in a community of 60,000 people, we, we fund literally about 10% of our city's government through the distributions and rent that we, that we pay. 
So all that said, it's we're now at this nexus where you've got a a city that owns land, about 200 acres of land in the on an island in the middle of the Mississippi River. We, the DRA, have a lease with them where we generate revenue, we generate profit, and we issue them about a $10 million dividend in the form of rent and annual distribution. And so what we've really pushed to do is to create and build more assets that produce cash that can buy down property taxes even further so that our community can continue to grow and flourish. And it's a really unique model that I'd never heard of before getting a call from the headhunter. And so the literally in the U.S., there's only two like us. It's us here in Dubuque and then Prairie Meadows in Des Moines. They have a similar model, but with Polk County, the county where they sit. Um, and so I'm privileged today that we now split our profits. A third goes to the charity, a third goes to uh, the city, and now a third goes towards Schmidt Island development uh, to develop this land where we sit uh, today. Very interesting. So it's not just it's it's not just a model where it, it goes back to the community, but you, you guys are literally helping plan reinvestment and and how to grow and continually uh, create new opportunities for for the community, even if it stems a little bit outside. I think you said it was in Mississippi, Schmidt Island, right? Well, it, so we're we're in yeah in the middle of the Mississippi in the Mississippi River, I should say. And so we, ah, we okay. yeah we border we border was Southwest Wisconsin. So about an hour mm-hmm. and a half from Madison, Wisconsin, about three hours west of Chicago, and about an hour, 15, hour and 20 north of the Quad Cities. And so when you have to do that much triangulation, triangulation, you know, we're, we're pretty rural place. But what's, what's interesting is we're about 20 minutes from the Field of Dreams. So if you've watched the movie with Kevin Costner, we're the, the home, you know, to the, if you build it, they will come. And that's really the spirit of what we're doing on this on this island where I say we're, we're making a little Ozarks of the upper Midwest or Martha's Vineyard of the Midwest, however you want to think about it, but it's a beautiful community. And it's, and you know, it's just really interesting. And going back to the model is that, you know, if you think of a state lottery, look, lotteries, you know, operate all over the U S but the difference here is that there is a local management team within the community who has purchasing or procurement power. And so the lottery, look, it does great, um, things all over the country to you know generate these revenues goes into a state coffer, but you don't really you know folks don't really know the the day to day impact or even the where sometimes those funds go because it it goes up to a state coffer and then goes in funds whether it's education or these big massive things. We're here because we give literally we had sixty organizations where we gave one point you know one million dollars to in the form of fifty to a hundred you know. Anywhere from five to fifty thousand plus thousand dollar contributions to a number of different organizations, and so it 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 brings it home in a way that's entirely unique. But then you also get a management team that can help a community, uh, which in our case is to you know get an airline back into a community because uh, American Airlines is left. We can help to pass a local school bond referendum, which we're focused on doing right now. All these different things. When you have a local management team in a community like this, you can really make a difference. I, I do love that. And and to your point, right, with the lotteries, I, I think I saw this in California and with so many of the other efforts in California, it, it kind of anything just ended up being rolled up into this blanket of infrastructure and education. And it, it just seemed like it got lost in the ether there. And so you could never really tie it back to any specific efforts. I, there's There's so much more of of a personal touch to this and and what you guys are doing. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And that's not to knock what lotteries do because they, they fund, you know, education to the tune across the country and and everyone's got their different strokes about it. But this, I think, you know, provides a name, a face, a brand, you know, we can buy local beer, we can buy, you know, local coffee, we can buy things and to help uh, recirculate dollars locally. Whereas, you know, look, in one state, you have one state lottery, and then it, there's a sucking sound from different places. It regurgitates. It's a great way to recycle dollars at a statewide level. What I think what makes this unique is that this is a great way to recycle dollars at, at a very hyper local level. I, I, I got to wonder, because this is this is so 
different kind of than than where you come from in the gaming industry what's it what's it been like from you making these this transition from obviously these these corporate juggernauts in like a caesars or an mgm which obviously gave you great opportunity too oh, absolutely but what has this kind of been like for you no i mean i'm i'm again i am a, not only a fan of the industry uh you know our family has you know been ushered into the middle class because of the industry, you know, there's been a, a a long history and, you know, that's a whole separate topic we can get into, but I'm very grateful for the lessons that I learned and starting out at a place like Caesars Entertainment. I mean, it was at Harrah's at the time and then transitioned to Caesars. I spent nine years there, you know, and I worked in the corporate office when Apollo and TPG owned it and, and ran a project called Project Renewal, where we were trying to restructure the company to stave off bankruptcy. That didn't go so well. But I, I learned a ton. You know, I cut my teeth as a, you know, assistant general manager working graveyards from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, helping, you know, Harris and Caesars kind of get a new casino off the ground. And so the lessons that you learn from a place that was literally transitioning from, you know, kind of single, standalone, family-owned business to then, you know, ushering in uh, institutional capital and then being owned by private equity. There's a an operating regiment that you learn at a place like a Caesars and then later at MGM that where the way I described is Caesars got to its EBITDA by through the expense structure of like, hey, how do you run the business efficiently so that you can take C assets and make them perform B to A, whereas MGM really got to its EBITDA through revenue, you know, through its brand, through its diversified kind of integrated resorts. That it really developed. And so having the ability to understand both sides of the ledger of the income statement and how it all come together was was really great. And then I marry that with, you know, my time at Goldman Sachs, where I really kind of got a really good understanding of, of cash flow statement and balance sheet. And so, you know, having now sitting in a CEO role, which is different from a general manager. It provides me the opportunity to be able to assess an organization like the DRA to be able to say, not only how can we just make more money within our profit and loss statement, but really how can we transform our company? And the way you do that is through the balance sheet. And so that's where, you know, this, this background of, you know, uh, high finance as well as, you know, large multinational corporations is really coming to bear here. And I'm, I'm really pri privileged to have the opportunity. Uh, because quite frankly, there just aren't too many CEOs in the gaming industry on, of a brick and mortar facility. You know, the tribal organizations who've who've taken similar, let's say, community impact models are phenomenal. But what's really cool is that, you know, our generation of leaders are now starting to take leadership of some of those tribes and deploy that. And so on the commercial side, or in our case, the nonprofit, I'm just blessed to have an opportunity to to serve as a CEO to take all that great knowledge and experience and then quite frankly, strip out some of the corporate BS that you just don't have to, you know, do or deal with, or you can dictate. And so, yeah, it, it's been, a, it's been a great transition. You know, business is business. You know, we run the business, we run our casino no different than anyone else. We run it for profit and then, but we distribute those profits in a very different way than our, than our traditional corporate commercial partners do. I'm so glad towards the end there you really drew that comparison um, between between you know the DRA and, and tribal gaming because that's the other place where in the United States you really do see a heavy amount of reinvestment in in the community mm -hmm. and so while again and similar to you right I I started at Caesars and didn't realize our, our times crossed paths until you mentioned Baltimore on the corporate on the corporate AML side I was the the supervisor overseeing that eventually over the technology and analytics side of that. Oh, I knew I liked you, Sean. There we go. Yeah, that's it. it's it's so great. I'm such a big proponent of tribal gaming and organizations like the DRA, where where again there is that personal touch, and it's and while these commercial organizations do great things, it's it's a very like transparent, easy to see level of reinvestment in the community, which I'm always a big proponent of. Yeah, and I think what's what's there's a role to play for our, the large multinationals and just, you know, capitalism broadly, you know, in order to create a place like Vegas, you needed to have entrepreneurs who were willing to stake out. I mean, you think back to what was going on in the, in the early you nineties know, when, when Steve Wynn and others were going out to wall street that says, Hey, look, give me high yield bonds. And in order to make this thing work, we got to do a, a million dollars in revenue a day. Right. And 
that takes gumption, that takes ingenuity, that takes creativity, and uh, very grateful for it. And so creating a worldwide destination like Vegas that, you know, welcomes 40 million people and is is a, a truly a phenomenon that makes, you know, Vegas the entertainment capital of the world. And so that's an exciting portion of these integrated resorts and destinations that is unique. But what I'll tell you just equally is what is not unique is outside of Vegas are the in regional communities or let's call it regional casinos. Uh, it's everything but, let's say, uh, ingenuity. These are regulated utilities is the best way to describe it. And so if you look at even the way that we build our economic models, you basically say, hey, let's take a look at any community in the world. And if you use a gravity model, you say, where would you want to place uh, a casino? You would want to place it where uh, there's a high density of people or a lot of people. And you want to put, put it in a place where there's a significant amount of wealth. And so then we figure out what the revenue potential is for a, a local casino in a regional market based upon, you know, largely those two factors. And so then, you know, state legislatures across America, you know, do what, what they do when you have a, an industry that is either un, under-regulated, not regulated, a gray market. You say, okay, hey, we're going to bring this out of the shadows. We're going to bring it into a community. And so, but, and, and so then, you know, the commercial casinos uh, and others will line up in order to pay a license fee in order to win the opportunity to provide gaming in a, uh, you know, with the, one of those privileged licenses. And so if you're only going to have a certain number of licenses, or if you're only going to have a certain amount of economic activity, the question is, is should that wealth creation uh, be held in the hands of, of a few corporations? Or is there a model that could uh, provide that really regulated utility uh, to be able to reinvest back within a local community? And so uh, in a community like Dubuque, uh, we're fortunate we have both. We have a, you know, a great corporate citizen in, in Boyd who operates a for-profit facility. They pay us 4.5% of their revenues that we then distribute out to the local community. But then we also, we are a standalone operator, meaning Q Casino, where we are effectively owned by the community. And so there are communities around the country that may not be able to attract the level of investment or be able to operate one of these privileged licenses because uh, we structure this business outside of Vegas in many ways to limit the number of licenses that are offered to make it as valuable as possible and then force people to drive to those to those areas. And, I, and I'll you know pause here in a minute, but if we look at Iowa and Texas, Iowa is one of the first places that had riverboats and we have 19 casinos here in Iowa. There's 3 million people. In Iowa, we generate about 20, you know, there's 22% marginal tax rate on our revenues. And so in Iowa, you know, gaming is the second highest form of income to the state, only behind income taxes. So above agriculture, above manufacturing, casinos generate a lot of the money. But if you compare that to Texas, where we as an industry want to go and, and open up that market, Instead of, you know, again, we have got 19 casinos in a state of 3 million. In Texas, there's 30 million people. And right now, our industry, we're saying, hey, we should have seven, only seven licenses in, in Texas. And so what that would mean is like Dallas would get one, you know, Houston would get one, San Antonio, Austin, you know, a couple of these others, which would be big, great integrated resorts, but a community like a Dubuque, a rural community that isn't in one of those major metros, couldn't have the benefit of, of a local gaming facility. And what I project is that I think as an industry, we need to, much like the broader hospitality community, you know, I mean, Marriott has a Marriott Marquis, uh, but then it has the Courtyard by Marriott. But if we say that we are only going to be relevant as an industry in the top 50, top 75 cities in America and across the world, we're one, missing out on economic opportunity, but we're also not solving the problems that are going to, that we need to in order to expand our industry and our business. And so I'm an advocate of making sure that people understand that there's tribal gaming, there's commercial gaming, but there's also this model of nonprofit gaming. 
And I think for smaller rural communities, not only in America, but across the world, I think there's an opportunity that state legislatures and governments need to take a look at. And that's what I'm a, a huge advocate of. And in a state like Texas, we should be relevant as an industry in more than just seven mega communities in a state of 30 million people. And, uh, and that's what uh, I'm, a, I'm a big, big fan of. I'm glad you used Texas as an example there because, I mean, it obviously very densely populated state, but also you have, I mean, just large, large rural areas in Texas, possibly more than anywhere else, you know, outside of maybe California. And, and so I think there is a very unique opportunity to, to deploy that model a bit more at scale. I mean, keep it localized, but to be able to do it in multiple communities with, within those areas creates I mean, just, I mean, just think of it is, is again, you would, if Nevada did not have Las Vegas today, uh, and if we took the approach that says, okay, Las Vegas is going to get one casino in the state of Nevada and Reno is going to get one, one casino. That's literally what we as an industry are, are doing, let's say in the state Mm -hmm. of Texas. Yeah. Right. I mean, based on population, that sounds about right. Right. There's, you know, let's say there's about 3 million people in, you know, in, uh, you know, in Vegas, in, you know, in Southern Nevada, you know, you know, however many up, up North. But, and so to that end is just to be able to say, could, like, could you physically imagine even without, let's say the strip or thinking that is, but just says, sure. Hey, look, that, that community should have just one. And so I think it's like, we can, we can do this because Look, large multinationals have the, the development budget to be able to go lobby and create the platform that says, hey, we don't want too much competition, so we're going to create these mega resorts. And in many ways, that is the model that a legislature says, all right, hey, in order to welcome in, we have to have it, or we have to have you know, this model in order to be able to go. And so, look, I, I do podcasts like these and others to shout from the rooftops that says, in order to provide economic opportunity for rural America, there has to be a model where you can either make money or you choose to go into a smaller place. And oh, and by the way, who are the people who are not voting for advancing you know, legislation to move forward? And it's a lot of these rural communities uh, across the nation. And so we're stuck in online gaming, we're stuck in sports betting, because we have not, as an industry, developed a model to help win the votes and to help to solve the needs of rural America. Well, I'm, I'm happy to give you uh, one more rooftop, albeit probably smaller, for you to shout from on this. I, I, Dude, Sean, it's, you're, it's they, a, they told me you got like millions of downloads every month. Right? You, I just want to look here. Dude, Connectify, you guys are big time. Well, we're, 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 certainly, we're certainly trying. I do. Uh, I wanna. I wanna pivot a little bit here. Obviously, as a as a compliance company, a compliance podcast, I, I want to go down this this rabbit hole a little bit with you. You know, when we we talk compliance, the the functions are often you know synonymous with with consumer protection, right? That's that's the ultimate goal of a lot of you know. There's fraud protections as well, but a lot of it is based around consumer protections, albeit things you know like AML have other law enforcement considerations in them as well. But with with such a direct connection to the community, you know, and, and with currently very polarizing issues like RG and, and gambling addiction, I, I wonder if the DRA has, you know, a different approach or a more personal approach when it comes to these because you are so directly involved in the community that you operate in. And this is where the our, our larger, again, multinational corporations think just all the publicly traded uh, they get it right, they do it right, and they've made our industry better because, quite frankly, they're they're held to a higher standard. You know, maybe that's not fair. I've held to a higher standard. We're all held to equally higher standard, but because they have the resources, they've been able to help uh, to advance. I think these topics in a way that is admirable. And so the short is is we've operated here even at the DRA for 37 years without a dedicated, let's say, regulatory compliance person. And so just because I spent so much time at the Caesars and MGM and, you know, with folks like Steve Martino, with, uh, with, with Alan Feldman, you know, with, with, with so many, uh, you know, other Susan or Sue, Sue Carletta before she passed, you know, I just, uh, you know, Kelly Magdaloya at, at, at a Caesars, 
you know, these are folks who just ingrained it into the culture and then are helping to deploy technology, is helping to, to have systems and processes in place that I've been able to leverage that experience to bring that here, where we now have a dedicated risk, regulatory compliance and safety person. And that's a direct reflection of just the time, you know, spending at some of the, these bigger places. And so, you know, I think many people, it, it's hard, a lot like insurance, if you will, is that you really don't fully appreciate it until something, you know, let's say bad happens. And so on this end is, look, knock on wood, nothing bad has happened. But I said, I don't want to wait until something does in order to, let's say, start a new position. And so I saw the benefit of building a culture of compliance, whether it be at, at Maryland, in Massachusetts, and then in my time in Vegas. And so I said, hey, even though we aren't required, even though that might not have been what has historically been in, in place, uh, we need to do this. And I think uh, as an industry and really some of the, the larger operators should really take a, a great pride in their leadership role that they've taken uh, within this. And so uh, like many things, I've now employed the approach of we are going to be uh, late adopters of proven profitable strategies and techniques. And in this case, making the investment in uh, regulatory compliance and in the technology that you use to comply uh, pays mm -hmm. dividends, just full stop. That was perfectly put. And uh, Sue Carletta, rest in peace. She, she was an absolute force and I uh, completely agree her, the, the culture of compliance that she enforced at Caesars uh, few I don't think anybody in the industry would argue few people better to learn from, yeah. uh, you know, for something like that. So uh, really, really glad, you know, you, you had her to learn from as well as obviously Stephen Martino and other, other people you've run into along the way. I, I want to kind of jump in, you know, a little bit on that compliance track still. And, and you started to mention sports betting and iGaming with Iowa you know, Iowa was a pretty early adopter on, on the sports betting end of things. You know, I think there's four years under the state and, and the casinos belt at this point. So, you know, been a bit on the, the frontier of AML NRG as far as sports betting and particularly online sports betting goes. So I, I wonder what some of the challenges that the DRA initially faced, obviously, you know, some of it's before your time there and some lessons learned and how that kind of impacts how you guys are operating now and how you've adjusted. No, it's a great question. And so I think a couple, let's say, you know, dis disclosures is I'm a huge sports fan. I am uh, not the biggest sports betting fan and uh, not the biggest sports betting fan uh, because of the economics. And so I think we start this conversation uh, in many ways, because uh, we've all heard about it, we've seen about it, we've seen it advance, and I, you know, love the amenity that it is. But sometimes we, as an industry, we we fall into this notion of like every seven years, you know, you know, throwing money away, uh, putting it in a dumpster, and lighting it on fire in a way that is uh, just inconceivable. And so, you know, we did it with buffets, we did it with high-end DJs, you know, paying, you know, these, these EDM DJs, like, you know, crazy amounts of money. Uh, we did it with poker where we built, like, you know, Taj Mahal's of rooms and then, you know, uh, uh, redid them, you know, less so with celebrity chefs, but the latest flavor of the month has been, has been uh, sports betting. And it's a little bit of the, Hey, if you have the sports betting, eventually we're going to, you know, I get my spreadsheet, we're going to, you know, uh, get. 2.3 states per year to approve sports betting. And then once it's all hooked up, we're then going to be able to get online gaming to go through. And so I think it's been a fallacy of, uh, of epic proportions within our industry to, to invest the level of capital that we've deployed as an industry to go after a business that had just this, a very small operating margins. So with that caveat, we here at Q Casino in, in, in Iowa, we had uh, sports betting and uh, the retail business was actually quite good. Meaning you come into the facility, you play, uh, you know, in our brick and mortar facility and, and having that amenity has been great. And I think we should, as an industry, continue to uh, invest in amenities. But we've invested uh, in uh, what could be thought of as a dessert, like it's an entree. And, and so we also here in Iowa, we have every one of the brick and mortar facilities 
uh, we each got our three uh, skins that we could operate. We operated one of our own, meaning the a Q branded uh, online sports book, and then uh, looked to play matchmaker with other people who wanted to use our other two skins. And so I think coming out when when money was free, again, this is pre-COVID, interest rates were at, you know, you know, record low rates. Uh, it was the go-go land and people said, hey, uh, we use words like total addressable market, uh, daily active users. We, you know, we make up all these other terms other than profit by which to judge ourselves. And so the rock stars of our industry were the people who could pay the most amounts of sports celebrities, the most amount of money. And we were in, in, a, in an all out, you know, foot race for it. So smaller operators like us here at Q Casino, like, you know, uh, first day I got here, I said, hey, look, turn off the spigot. Stop spending marketing money, period, on anything online. You know, we had very little downloads. Our tech stack wasn't the greatest. We had these kind of, uh, uh, you know, incentive-laced uh, agreements with online operators who never, you know, who didn't necessarily get launched. And so uh, we've got some folks who are, who are, you know, giving their, their best shot, you know, now. But, you know, it's almost like, you know, waking up after a frat party, you know, the next day and you see all the cups, you see all, everything else. And like, that's what we're going through right now, where, you know, large companies are, you know, taking huge write-offs. Large public companies who've been in this business have never turned a profit, right? And the minute they do, it's, it's, it's going to be a struggle. And so, look, there's a, a good and decent business somewhere embedded in here. But we still have a lot of carnage that will continue to flow through our business. And so the issue is that we've clouded the waters of what online gaming, let's say, has the potential longer term, I think, to do with, with a really tough go at it uh, on, the, on the sports betting side. And so, you know, there, it's not all doom and gloom. But if we don't have a, a reckoning within our industry to really understand how did we get to this place? How did we literally waste, you know, possibly half a trillion dollars, like when it's all said and done across the industry that has not added any value, that has not created, like driven up our stock prices, that has not opened up new markets. We have to ask ourselves, is there a different way? What are the lessons that we're learning? How are we going to be different when and if we have the opportunity to have privileged licenses for iGaming? Because this is not the way. You do not have to waste billions of dollars in order to make a business successful. And so, sorry, I got off on a tangent there, but um, it's just something I have to get off my chest as it relates to this business is like, again, we operate a brick and mortar casino with 60,000 people within our community. We do top line $60 million in revenue, $20 million in, in, in EBITDA, right? But you know, the industry as a whole has not produced what this small nonprofit casino has done, you know, in, in ages. And so I think we just have to put things in, in perspective. And there's a great tech stack that has been developed through this process, but that's the, you know, the best trillion dollar websites that we've ever had in our, you know, in our nation's history. And so we just got to be honest with ourselves and we can strip out some of this wasteful spending and get back into being good capitalists. Thank you for 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 going on that that explanation. And and I, I like that you pointed out, and I think you called it a fallacy, right? Is viewing sports betting as almost this uh, a bit of a Trojan horse for for iGaming to come in, and that really that really hasn't come to fruition. And to your point, you're looking at you know half a trillion dollar in total expenditures to get us to I think, gosh, what are we in seven or eight states even for for iGaming, and and I think that lends itself to an interesting, you know, kind of next step in this conversation, because it doesn't really sound like online is has been, you know, incredibly profitable for for the DRA as, as much as obviously the retail business. And then obviously online gaming was turned down in the 2023 legislative session, but there there does look to be more optimism looking into the 2024. So I'm curious how you and the DRA view kind of the possible entry yeah. of online and, and to be clear, it hasn't been profitable for anybody, right? Meaning sports betting has yeah. not been profitable for anybody. The people who have profited from it are, you know, are the advertising agencies who've received, yep. the, you know, this money, right? 
Um, you know, the states, they don't get a ton of money. Look, they, you know, because ultimately if you, you back out all the, the, you know, the promo expense, you do all these other different things, it's not really moving the needle. And that's what, what hurt us in, in, in California, right? Where you say, Hey, look, oh right, yeah, we're going to solve homelessness. or We're going to solve, you know, this stuff through the couple million bucks that we're generating from the industry. It's the, 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 the business itself is bad. And sometimes we as operators, you know, of slot machines is that we think our genius in, you know, winning, you know, licenses to operate a business that let's say, you know, takes more money than it gives back, let's say applies to other businesses, but the gross margins of sports betting is not that of a slot machine. Right. And so, uh, so to that end, you know, no, nobody's making money in, 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 you know, within it. And so now, You've got, uh, let's say, the folks who control the tech stacks who are trying to, you know, increase, you know, the, the base uh, expense that a smaller operator like us, you know, let's say, pays to be able mm -hmm. to, you know, take the profits out of even on the retail side. So, so, you know, this notion of sports betting being the Trojan horse, no, it set us back. I mean, this would, this would be an easier conversation if we were all singing Kumbaya going into state legislature. And so there's more activity, but there's more activity because, you know, the people who've wasted the most money, who still have the ability to, let's say, continue to fund these operations are saying, hey, let's go on to the next party because, you know, we've obliterated, let's say, the, you know, the, the rest of the field. And so what you're going to end up with on the sports betting side is, you know, four or five operators who will have a good little business. They'll have a good business. But what has, has transpired is a smaller operator, let's say like us, is we would be operating against our financial best interests if we were full-throated about iGaming. And so we're not going to be full-throated about it because today we uh, in, in, in rural Iowa have the opportunity to provide casino gaming alongside one other competitor. Why would we before advancing, let's say, the opportunity to introduce another competitor without some sort of financial offset. And so mm -hmm. this is where things are going to start to get stuck and get hairy. Because two years ago, I'd have been like, hey, yeah, bring on iGaming because I came from uh, the, the, the big behemoths, right? Sure. And so now as I sit, you know, in a smaller community, you know, this is a place where, look, is there a deal to be had? Maybe. But, uh, you know, why isn't I? gaming legal in nevada it's because the brick and mortars don't want it so why are you going to come here to iowa and tell me as a small brick and mortar that i should introduce a product that you don't even have up and operating in in the home state right i mean you could have a lottery in nevada you don't you could have iGaming in nevada you don't so you're telling me that i should hey come and open up my market you know, and I could have an, I could be a net loser and that money go to, let's say it's still paid up to the state, but then also it could just shift to a different operator. And so this mm -hmm. is where the rub is going to happen. And so my point is that if we don't have solutions for rural communities, you know, this, this stick in the mud, right, is going to prevent iGaming from flourishing. And so I think, look, there's an opportunity, the business model and the margins are, are great or are phenomenal. But if I look at who couldn't make it work on the sports betting side, I mean, you have large multinational corporations sure. who are taking huge write-offs and they had beautiful websites, beautiful marketing. They got, you know, you know, world-class hall of fame athletes as their spokespeople and they folded. How do I think I'm going to compete with, you know, the likes of, uh, you know, these, the, the big four. So I think that's the piece that that message, it, 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 it's, you're not going to hear about it as much. You can hear the, the steamroll, but in state legislators, uh, in, you know, in state offices, this is going to be a very difficult conversation because with, uh, unless there's an opportunity to offset some of the losses that will take place in our business, sure. we cannot be vocal, vocal proponents. Uh, that's, that's, that's completely fair. You know, I, I think it's and kind of going back to the the concept of the lotteries, right? A, a lot of it would be happening very much at the state level. So you you get into a discussion of how much would your community, you know, how much would yeah, you have, Dubuque? Yeah, it's much easier when you have one lose. operator. When you have one operator, yeah. it's much great. But if we try this, 
jump ball approach on the iGaming, just like we did within the sports betting, which is on the heels of, you know, the kids, you know, betting and signing up on sports and all these other different things. We've got to uh, make sure we've learned all the lessons from the sports betting side, you know, before we get into iGaming. And so we can, you know, drag our feet and, and, but it's, it's entirely because this is the place in the ecosystem where, where I sit and where our business is today. And so I've got to make sure we're doing the best to protect our, our, not only business, our employees and the communities that we serve. And, and that voice has to be a, a part of that broader discussion. So do you think, and obviously you're, you know, you're getting your voice out there, you're getting the community's voice out there as, as it comes to these discussions. Do you think there is an operating model or do you have an idea of what an operating model is that could, that could still work out, not just at the state level, but at, you know, kind of your local community level, if we were, you know, if iGaming were to get introduced to the state of Iowa? Money. Money is the operating level. I mean, it is. This is we generate a significant portion of our communities. Let's say city general operating budget comes directly from brick and mortar, uh, brick and mortar mm. gaming. And so, if we have we compete against one other group, if you're now saying, "Hey, we're going to compete against many more," there has to be some form of an offset in order to be able for us to to welcome in more competition. We have a, a limit. We have a privileged license, but this will impact. Uh, uh, rural communities in a community like ours. And so if, if the state in its right says that, hey, we want this to move forward, what we'd advocate for is to be able to say, we need to have some type of, uh, of compensation in order to offset the uh, uh, loss against our business because we're reinvesting. You know, we're literally, we're going to, you know, launching an $80 million redevelopment of our casino in the brick and mortar, building a new hotel reinvesting in all these things. And we give away literally millions of dollars into our community. And so if we're going to advocate for some introduction of uh, future competition that is going to put that in jeopardy, they're, they're just, you know, we're respectfully asking for some type of consideration for that. And so uh, this is, I'm not a Debbie Downer on the uh, online gaming. Sure. It could be a great business, but from where we sit within the industry, uh, I'm, I'm not, putting uh our uh you know our, our our treasure trove into us being able to benefit from that because from sports betting we have not we have not so uh, history rhymes and sometimes repeats it's where where i think history you know could and, and and i hope is a little bit different is you know like you guys said you're you're very unique in the united states right there's only one other operating model similar to it so there's there is a voice now at least that understands the community and understands the gaming side, but is fighting for the community mm -hmm. to be able to have those conversations. So, you know, really, really looking forward to, to see how that, how those conversations progress. You know, I, I hope you guys are able to have an impact like you. I'm a very, very big proponent of gaming. Don't ever plan on leaving this industry, to be honest. Uh, so I'll, I'll be, I'll be curious to see if, if you guys are able to, work out a model that still benefits the communities. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think, you know, what's, what's amazing about our industry is that, you know, even if you take a step back is that our industry has followed the creation of a ro robust and sustained middle-class. And so after world war two, um, you know, we, we came back uh, to the U S and, and we built our country and, and after, you know, 20, 30 years of working hard, you know, with advancements in healthcare, we then said, Hey, look, we need to create this model of, of gaming and bring it out of the shadows because people are living longer and have more time. And so if you think of gaming, we're really a, a country club for the middle class. Like that's what these businesses are. And so in the U.S., we had a robust middle class. And so we created, you know, the, the Las Vegas, the Atlantic cities and the regional gaming and now tribal gaming. Right. So then if you look and say, okay, well, where else on very large scales and, you know, in the modern era, have we created middle class? Well, that's China. And so if you think of Macau, Macau, after creating and introducing literally hundreds of millions of people into a middle class, they had more time and uh, disposable income. And so, you know, Macau came. And so if we think of, you know, now in the Middle East, my good friend Jim Murren just named, you know, uh, chairman uh, out there in United Arab Emirates. And so 
there's a tremendous wealth creation that, as we all know and see, that's occurring. And you've got people who are doing what uh, Dr. Bo Barnhard talks about is the fun economy. And so gaming has now become firmly entrenched into the fun, fun economy. And as you build a sustained middle class, we as an industry have an opportunity to go all over this world. And what, uh, again, to bring it back, we need to be not just relevant in the major metro areas in the world. We need to be relevant in rural communities. And those places, when you uh, attempt to then have more licenses, more opportunities, more forms of gaming, sports, online gaming, we have to be comfortable as an industry to talk about what are the real life solutions that we can help to ameliorate or how can we help to usher people into the middle class through hospitality jobs and everything else we've done it. And so we can get over this hump through frank and direct conversations. And I think domestically, it is really hard to move people off of, of their economic interests. And so, you know, just bringing it back is like, look, Nevada could have iGaming today. And you say, why doesn't it? Because there's a big, robust, physical brick and mortar business. And so these things are tough. But uh, through direct dialogue, conversation, we can achieve it and we can grow our business. But uh, it's, it's going to take some work. Alex, this has been a, a very different conversation, I think, from any of the other podcasts I've had so far. But I, I really appreciate the conversation. <laughs> and I think that last point you made is, is a perfect place to put a pin in it. Um, thank you so much for your time. It's, it's been fascinating and it's, and it's been a learning moment for me, um, you know, getting to hear your perspective from, from the DRA. No. Well, thank you, Sean. Uh, thank you, Connectify. Appreciate the ingenuity and the innovation you all are bringing to the business. Uh, regulatory compliance is, is vitally important. Uh, we're huge fans. And so uh, keep pushing and let's make this, this gaming space that we operate in a, a better place. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us today on Connectify Conversations. You can support our show even more by leaving us a rating wherever you download your podcast and by sharing Connectify Conversations with gaming industry leaders like yourself. Visit Connectify.com to learn more. That's K-I-N-E-C-T-I-F-Y dot com. Until our next conversation, always remember to minimize risk and maximize your efficiency.